Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Miscellaneous Weekly. Uh, I am your host, Bridge, but this is a very special episode of Miscellaneous Weekly, and the reason why this isn't attached to the rest of the episode is because I didn't know what episode this would be when I did the interview. So, uh, yeah. Without further ado, the interview with Alexander Danner and Jeff Andreessen of Greater Boston. So the first one I've got in here is, uh, how did you come up with the idea for Greater Boston? Uh, it started with me writing a bunch of microfiction. Um, I was just kind of uh, playing around with, with character sketches and trying to write some very short narratives um, because I, I tend to write really, really long. And so I was uh, deliberately making myself go the other direction a bit. Um, and they were initially not connected. Uh, I think the very first one was uh, the bit about uh, destroying the crystal ball was the oldest piece of writing here, uh, which in that version was being done by a guy named Carl. Um, so that- Gemma, Gemma was Carl at one point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and it wasn't really going anywhere as a piece of short fiction, and I had a few other pieces that I had started playing with, uh, and then it just started to make sense to try to tie them together into a linked set of stories, um, which started becoming, you know, a community set around Boston, um, and, and then I started actively pursuing Jeff to try to get him to get involved once I had the idea of it should be an audio drama, um, and then he brought in some of the key plot elements that, that tied it all together. I, I um, yeah, I came in kind of just workshopping the, the mini stories that Alexander was working on. And um, I, I think I gave him a couple of suggestions. I think I, I said, you know, it would be good to centralize it in one specific location. And I suggested, you know, where we live, because it's always easy to write about where you live. And I think I mentioned like this idea of a character who uh, says he's the mayor and people believe he's the mayor but he's not actually the mayor um, and then he wrote this whole monologue and he came back he's like yeah I took that idea and I, I, I ran with it and he's going to be pushing for the red line to secede from Cambridge and Boston and I was like what? <laughs> and I and that, that was when I first started really kind of getting interested before it's not that it wasn't good before it was just it was so loosely connected that I had a hard time kind of figuring out what it was and I think originally Alexander had intended it to not cross over as much as it does yeah um i think originally the characters were going to be possibly like one-offs that we may see very briefly again but not repeatedly um which is probably why in the beginning of the first few episodes it feels very kind of like um like people are just in their own worlds and it doesn't even seem like there's much of a possibility that they're they could cross over too much um which i think halfway through the first season starts to change mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did initially imagine them being in a common world and so reacting to common events, um, but being more peripheral in each other's stories than, than the direction we ultimately went. And I, and I did definitely have an idea that I, I, we were going to flesh out the world on the whole by having these periodic one-off characters, maybe, you know, one every episode or two, um, who are really there just to make the community larger and, and see the other stories going on in the background of the main stories. Um, but every time we did one of those, we ended up falling love, in love with the character. 
Mallory. Yeah, because Mallory, Mallory was one yeah, of Yeah, she was only meant to appear in that one episode. Uh, and we're better off that she appeared in more. <laughs> we all agree with yeah. that. She... Mallory's okay, and that's all that matters. Yeah, she, she's too she's fun okay. to write to, to not bring her back. Uh, you know, since we're talking about Mallory, I guess this is a good segue. Uh, how much swearing is, uh, Mallory, I guess, how much swearing, well, now I don't know how to phrase it. I got it. Like, what's an amount of swearing that is Mallory amounts of swearing? <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> That's a tough question and i really kind of feel it out organically when i'm writing her um you know i definitely will have uh times when i go back and add some swearing in um but at the same time it's important not to force it so there are times where where i'll write a bit and i've put the swearing in and i'll realize no i just put that there because she's got a swear it's not it doesn't really feel like it's coming out of her and I'll, and I'll end up taking those parts out. Um, but the most important thing is that she is really creative in how she swears. Um, and, it, and it's more important that she come up with a really memorable insult than that the insult actually be a swear. Right. It's more cursive conjunctions yeah. or curse, curse con- conjunctions and sort of combinations. And I, I tend to notice that she for me, she doesn't actually swear as often as... I think her reputation might think mm-hmm. but when she gets angry or when she gets like really excited that's when the curses start kind of coming out for her like when she doesn't like something all of a sudden it's just like this weird combination of every single curse <laughs> and like bad thing you can say about someone combined into one blob of swearing <laughs> all right and i also tend to go back and tweak a lot of her I, I just kind of write her out and then I'll be like, oh, she should say this more creatively or she should not say that because that's too much. It's too forced. Um, yeah. It's surprisingly, once you get going, you kind of have to amp yourself up to get into it. But once you get going, it's surprisingly easy and kind of delightful to do because <laughs> it just gives you free reign to let your inner trash mouth teenager out. Kind <laughs> of. <laughs> okay, so sort of veering back to the track that I originally intended these interviews to be, which was more strictly writing. Uh, so who, who, how do you decide who writes what? And I know in the ask I used, uh, do you decide via epic rock, paper, scissors, or does it just work out really nicely? Uh, we mostly alternate episodes, although we stop every few episodes to hash out, is there, you know, is there a particular moment that you really wanted or or that I really wanted? Um, and it hasn't been too big of a battle. Um, usually if one of us has a scene that we were really intent on writing, the other one says okay. Um, and, and fortunately most of the time it's not the same scenes. Yeah, we, we tend to have different kind of interests um with our writing and that speaks to this too since it's such a big project in a lot of ways there's so many different things to sort of focus in on and what we tend to want to focus in on is different from each other um there are exceptions and there are times when i'm like man i would have really loved to have written that and i'd also like to add that like it's it's really nice because there are times when i don't particularly want to write something 
But Alexander will just be like, give me an idea. And be like, well, you know, here's how this is going to go. And you should write a heist episode. And I was like, a heist episode? And he's like, yeah, where Tyrell like, steals the stress balls. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. And then I do it, and I have a ball doing it. So, And I, I think that like we're, we're always kind of giving each other ideas and like inspiring each other. So even when one of us is physically doing the writing, it definitely feels like a, a co-authored piece it was really so funny to me that you were so opposed to the heist scene at first because part of why i I wanted to bring that in is because you love heist stories so much i I was i do i like (laughs) i was literally trying to hand that to you i know but it just seemed like uh, i i so i wrote a whole novel which is about people stealing from movie theaters and um like heists in movie theaters and i do love i like crime fiction i always have um and so it, it makes sense that I would do this. And, but it's just like it, at the time with the Tyrell thing, I was just like, I don't get it. Like, why is he stealing <laughs> these things? I know he's going to give them to Michael, but Michael's not even going to be there. They're going to fall through the Ewok village pit. Like, um, but then I just had such a good time doing it. So I'm, I'm actually grateful that he gave me the idea. So. <laughs> I needed a moment to recover from Ewok village. <laughs> okay. Uh, so after things are all written, sort of, how does the, the writing that, I already asked about, how does the editing process go? Uh, pretty much the same for the most part who, uh, on the whole, whoever writes an episode generally edits and produces the, the episode. Um, oh wait, do you mean edit, edit the, the writing or edit the, the, the production? Edit the, the, oh, the oh, oh, okay. Uh, uh, we hello, mysterious horse. Sorry, wow, that was my roommate. Horse, Sorry. literally a curtain there. <laughs> Just someone, someone popped up. Wait, she turned the hall light on for me. How nice. Um, oh, you can you can keep answering. Sorry. Okay, uh, sure. So, uh, we we both read each other's work and we we give it a, a close and and harsh reading. Um. We, we try to be really honest about what's working and, and what isn't. And if a character doesn't feel quite themselves, um, we'll give a lot of notes on that. Uh, so we do end up doing a, a, a bunch of revision um, until both of us feel happy with, with where the episodes are at. Um, fortunately, we have, we have a, a long relationship uh, in workshopping each other's writing. So I, I think that usually goes pretty smoothly. Yes. We've known each other since 2002 when we met in grad school um, at, at a playwriting workshop. Um, so we were, we we're very much used to getting notes from each other. And it literally this whole project came when we were workshopping each other's fiction. Um, and I think we, I think, I mean, I, I think we both learned how to take criticism and how to take notes and revision really well. Um, in general, but with I think each other especially, like we both understand that if someone's saying something, it's it's for a reason. It's not just because you know for whatever. They're, we're trying to make the story better. Um, it it just it gets tough sometimes because, especially as it goes farther along, because the story keeps getting bigger and bigger, and there's so many things to consider, and so that that's where it gets kind of challenging. And that's that's where we're kind of at now with season three, writing season three. It's just it, it's making sure that we're keeping all the characters balanced, that we're seeing everybody enough, that all the plots are moving forward. And it's kind of great working on this massive thing. It doesn't probably, hopefully not feel that massive while you're listening to it, but with all these characters and all the stuff that's going on and trying to like 
make everything blend together. It's uh, it's turns out it's challenging. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> and, and one of the challenges we're having right now is, and especially because there's so much going on, um, and this speaks to both uh, attention between our writing styles, but also ways that we balance each other and, and make the project better through through our differences, is we have this tension where um, Jeff is very focused on the plot and keeping the plot moving uh, and knowing that everything makes, you know, sense to some degree. Whereas I'm there like, no, no, I want to slow down and have character moment. I want to just sit with a character doing whatever they're doing right now. Um and so we're trying to find this balance with, you know, the plot has to keep going. But this started with, you know, these close looks into these people and how they think and how they live um, and finding room for both those things without the episodes ending up as long as my recent drafts have been. <laughs> yes, that's that's very true. I think we I think we hit that balance um, more often than not, mm -hmm. but it's it's becoming a, a larger challenge as we go. And I think that's speaks to the importance of how we have to sort of map out the rest of what we're going to be doing with the, with the whole show. Yeah. Which we're also starting to do a little bit more. Okay. And uh, sort of doubling back to workshopping, when you were workshopping and you got all these notes, uh, how did you tell if a note was like actually a good note or if it was bad or maybe just not quite what you need at that given moment to make your work better is this for each other or in general like in in general it's hard um because there were definitely times especially in grad school when i would get a note that i did not agree with um i think the important thing is just to listen to it mm -hmm. listen to even even and here's this is this is really hard too Sometimes people will give you a note and there's a kernel of truth in it, but it's what they're saying isn't quite right. There's, there still might be something not quite right about the piece and about the part that they're kind of talking about, but what they're saying isn't the right either way to say it or the right thing to focus on. That doesn't mean you shouldn't look over what they're talking about, though, because there could be some actually good stuff to work on in that, in that part of whatever it is. But a lot of it is just instinct. Like, it's just good to sort of trust yourself. And, like, do you feel 100% about the piece of writing that they're talking about or the specific part that they're talking about? Or are there, or do you know that there's some things that you could possibly work on, too? And I think that that's tricky. It's not, it's not an easy thing to have the ability to just, like, either brush something off or know exactly what they're talking about. It, it takes practice, I think. And I, to be completely honest, there's, there's time when I... I still struggle with it um, when it's especially somebody I don't know very well who's giving me feedback. There and there are plenty of times that I'll get a note and I'll be like, "No, that's wrong. That doesn't make sense. What what I'm doing is better." And then like the next day, I'm like, "Well, let me poke at it and see if I can make sense of what they're saying." And and a half hour later, I've completely revised it according to the note, and it's like, "Wow, this is so much better. They were totally right." Um, and and often, it, you know a note that is a really important note will be one that I am adamantly opposed to in the, in that moment that I first hear it. Um, and that's because it's getting at something essential uh, that maybe you don't want to admit isn't working. Yeah, there's definitely times when I'll be like, oh, come on, that's nitpicky, or uh, 
and then I'll and I'll think about it and look at it and be like, oh, actually, no, this makes it much, much better. Yeah, <laughs> I should have seen that ahead of time. Um, it just it's a nice feeling because it makes you understand that people are actually invested in your writing getting better. That it's not criticism; um, it's constructive criticism. All right, and then I guess how on top of that, how do you know when you need to cut something? Like it's getting <laughs> too long, but you love all of it. My my current. But you need to My cut. current episode, last time I worked on it, I cut a thousand words. You you get a lot less precious. Uh, and and you still have a long ways to go, right? I do. I'm still 1,500 over. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I get obsessed with lengths. <laughs> like, I get really, like, bent out of shape about them. Yeah. I'll start sweating when I'm writing. I'll be like, oh, my God. Like, I'm going to totally blow the, the, the word count. Like, this is going to be horrible. Um, so, so I really make it I, – I just kind of figure – like, make it work. Episode 19 um, – this is, this is true. I don't think I even told Alexander that. But episode 19 was the one where, like, Chuck Octagon is interviewing all the candidates. And they the structure was supposed to be, like, each, each candidate gets a flashback about, like, something that they're afraid of. And at the end <laughs> – like the word count was so high at the end, I just invented Ethan taking off and leaving a cheese robot <laughs> behind for Emily. That's why that just, happened. Just because of the yeah, I was like, I'm not gonna have time to have a whole scene with Emily. So guess what? We're leaving a cheese robot behind. Like Ethan's taking off because I thought that sp- that spoke to her fear. I thought it would make a nice cliffhanger. Nobody ever said anything about if it didn't work. So I guess like it kind of all worked out. But like that to me, like word counts, like having a specific timing. Sometimes just pressures me to just like wait and like especially with a project like this, I'll just do it later, kind of. So um. so, so that is certainly a, an example of a moment where I'm reading the draft Jeff has sent me, and I get to the end like, whoa, wow, that took a left turn. I guess yeah, we're going there now. We we planned. I just kind of threw it at him, and I I think I specifically asked him like, what'd you think about that? No, you you wrote a note back that was just like, where the hell is Ethan? <laughs> But you also like made the mayor disappear, and I didn't anticipate that, so I felt like we're even. Yeah, no, no, I, I couldn't get. I, I specifically didn't question it precisely because I knew I'd already done the same thing to you. <laughs> we're just gonna start disappearing characters <laughs> at each other. <laughs> that'll, that'll get the limit down. But, but when we only have a handful of characters left, then then our scripts will be. Yeah, shorter. but the the um, mayor leaving was that was I was you know on like the third draft of that scene that i just couldn't get to work because i was trying to write this victory speech and it was boring um and there was no drama in it and and you know i had this epiphany of like oh he's not gonna give the speech um and and then you know the the plot changed and i was so mad at first (laughs) yeah what because I was already thinking about stuff to do with the character and where he was going to go. And I was like, wait, what, he's just going to leave? Like, what? But in retrospect, I looking back over some things that were already there and that Alexander eventually fleshed out, I think it made a lot of sense and actually made it more dramatic and, you know, created made the story more complex, gave more to Charlotte to do. So it was the right call. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I... That's one of my, probably one of my favorite segments is not only the scene with the mayor deciding he's just going to leave, but also what I, the scene between the mayor and Michael, which I call it the take a drink (laughs) scene, because it's just, I, that scene is amazing. Well, that's a great example of, I would write a scene and send it to Jeff and he'd write back, nope. Uh, Yeah, that one took a while. It did. 
it was a tough one. At first, I, I think I said on Tumblr the other day, I think I gave the wrong initial idea. Because initially it was an article that he was writing, right? Yeah. And then it became an AA meeting. Yep. And then I was just like, you got to have him meet the mayor. Like, he's got he's to gotta have a conf- confrontation with the guy. Um, and even that, I think, went through a couple drafts. Oh, yeah. But I remember, I remember there was one you sent me. And I was like, yep, this is it. It's got to be trimmed down some, which, you know, was coming back to like, you know, how do we decide what to cut? Um, but I was like, this is this is exactly what it needs to be because um, it just had everything in there that it needed to have. And and um, and it's a great example of one of those spots where like I'd get the notes like, what does he want from me? What, how many times do I have to do this? But <laughs> but then by the end, I loved the end result so much and it was so far better than anything I had been drafting to that point that it's one of those cases where you know i'm questioning the advice at first until i try doing it and then it's like oh my god he was so right about this um and and it ended up being one of the bits of writing i was proudest of in the season uh and it wouldn't have happened without that that pushing yeah all right oh sorry oh, i was just gonna i was just gonna go you've got something to say. i was just gonna go back to to um how do you how do you know what to cut and that for one thing it's re, it's just what is really good about working with other writers and just getting their perspectives um, because honestly to me everything seems a little bit precious and I don't a lot of times I'll get really nervous about cutting anything but then somebody will just say ah this isn't needed or you don't need that and then I'll look at it and be like what do you mean I don't need it need I need it all you know <laughs> I'll get very like passionate about it um, but uh, like having that perspective makes me look at it again in a way that's just like, well, what happens if I just take it out? And if I take it out, am I going to miss it? And the answer usually is no. Like mm-hmm. the answer usually is as a whole, the piece hasn't changed much. It's, it's feels like a lot to you in that moment, but ultimately it's really not that big of a sacrifice. And, and if it is something that I feel like, no, I do really want this. A lot of times I'll just cut and paste it into a document and save it to, to bring in somewhere else. Yeah. I have a lot of Frankenstein documents with just patchwork <laughs> prose pieces from various cuts that uh, even show up later in greater Boston episodes or Mm -hmm. even other, even other stuff. All right. Uh, I guess sort of continuing on the topic of writing. uh, This is one that I was actually really curious. So I asked it yesterday Uh, for all of the connections kind of which which ones were intended and which ones were just happy accidents that just worked out really well in terms of the story oh boy a lot of them flow organically from what's happening through the plot we i think we find a lot of them as we go as well this is a clear case where these two characters ought to encounter each other um so i mean the ones that are intended and obviously the characters who are related to each other um and the people who work at Third Sight, those are, are thought pretty well through as to, you know, obviously they're all going to know each other because they're all ending up in the same office. Um, but a lot of the friendships that happen along the way really kind of develop organically like a friendship does. Yeah, I I think that we, we started kind of planning some of the season two more more concrete connections when we were finishing our season one and when we were starting to record and we were basically like what's going to happen when this person starts hanging out with this person 
what's going to happen when this person meets that person and just kind of spitballing those ideas and just kind of talking about what would make sense for for people to you know come together um and it, it was a lot of fun because so much of season one is just these characters are kind of siloed a little bit mm-hmm. um and so once once we kind of started playing with them with each other where they could actually talk to each other and get to know each other better uh it was it, it changed the show i mean the whole show became different um and it was exciting because you you just know how this character talks and it's like well how are they going to talk when there with this person and stuff like that i don't know I, I i don't i think it's a mixture though of like planning and just stuff happening spontaneously um there'll just be sometimes when we're writing something and it's just like well i need a character to come in here and you know deliver this or do that and i'll, I'll just think of like who do we have who's around that we can we can put into the scene and so sometimes it's like they just pop up um on the fly and sometimes it's like very deliberate like no these people have to meet and they have to start forming a relationship and a friendship or or become enemies or something um so it's a a bit of both i think i i think it's worth mentioning why uh the characters were so siloed at the beginning and it wasn't just about the the initial concept um but also at the very beginning of this i had no confidence i was actually going to be able to get actors (laughs) <laughs> so so my, my original thought was, well, let's keep this to where the recording would be super simple. I don't have to try to get people acting opposite each other. It'll be monologues and narration, and, and that'll be manageable if, if I don't get like heavy buy-in from the people I'm going to be asking to do this. Um, and once it started to become clear that we had people genuinely enthusiastic about being part of the, the project... Uh, it became easier to let ourselves start having these more complicated scenes and relationships. It's interesting too, because I think in some ways the monologues are harder to do, mm-hmm. easier easier to record certainly, yeah, but and and easier to schedule. <laughs> but um, but when you're just kind of going with a big text, that's that's just a lot to carry sometimes. Whereas if you're playing off other people, it's 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 lively, it's fun. You get a break sometimes. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. I also do just really yeah. love writing monologues. You do. Yeah. Comes, that goes back to our playwriting days. Yeah. So, speaking of casting, how do you decide, like, when you make a character, and you need to cast for them? Is there like a specific way you go about casting where you like, I want them to sound sort of like this, and then you listen or. Do you like just listen to the actors and think, oh, that's that character's voice right there? Ah, uh, that goes different ways with different characters. Um, like I, I intended from when I started writing Michael that that was going to be James Oliva. That was, you know, that character was written for him. Um, a lot of the others, it was, you know, we hold um, table readings. And so especially in the first season, we would just invite everyone we knew who had good voices or interest in acting or would give good feedback on writing, you know, and, and just got... Or just, just friends and neighbors. Yeah. Joanna, Joanna is just like a friend of ours. Um, and we didn't, we hadn't really thought of her uh, for any specific part, but man, she read Mallory and it was just like, yep, that's it. Yep. That's Mallory right there. Like we just knew that that was exactly what she needed to sound like um and she i don't think she had much acting experience if any at all 
prior to this. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I don't I don't know of her having any. Um, but I, mean, I but know I she don't went know. to Bard, so maybe she did something there, but I don't I don't think so. Um, so yeah. Uh, but anyway, I interrupted you. Go oh ahead. no, that's all right. And and again, it, you know, we met in grad school in a playwriting program, and and we did theater, and and so we had a lot of active friends um, to start with. Uh, and so and again, I knew we had a lot of really strong uh, women actors in our social circle. So you know, really front loaded it with lots of sh- strong women characters because that's the actor pool that we had. Yeah, and then there was, and those early table readings were interesting too because I remember, I remember Braden reading Leon, and again just having that feeling like, oh, that is the voice, that is exactly like who has to play Leon. Yeah. We need to convince him, no matter what. And at the same time, there was there was someone that we knew, and this is no disrespect to James Capobianco who does an amazing job as the mayor, but there's a friend of ours who we were basically like, we we just thought he was going to be the mayor. We like, yeah, he had the perfect voice. He, he was very academic sounding, um, but he has he has stage fright. And he was just like, you know, he's fine doing it at a, at a table reading, but like in front of a mic, he just basically is like, I can't do it. Um, so, you know, there's there's some disappointment that goes that way too. <laughs> and he's a great, great guy, great friend. And I totally understand where he's going. Oh, yeah. From, but um, sometimes I, I imagine the alternate universe where we convinced him to do it. But um, <laughs> Because the nice thing about that is James would have been on the show no matter what. But, oh, yeah. But it's cool. We, I didn't really know James, and we were really like we – well, I don't know what it was, but we were having a hard time convincing the fellas to, to sort of come and be voices. Um, so we were like – I think – I forgot how – Alexander knew him from like way back in the day, right? Uh, when you were eighth grade. We, yeah. we were in and middle so we were school like, together. We, we want you to be this character who's going to change his name like 15 times and eventually call himself Extinction Event. And this other guy called the mayor of the red line. Can you do com- two completely different voices for these weirdo characters? And he was just like, yeah, I can do that. Um, so he, yeah, he has was... a lot of uh, musical theater background, which yeah, he always wants us to write a song. We got to get a song. In there. You're right. We do have to get him a song. Um, but especially for the mayor, that really worked. That musical theater emoting uh, is, is so much a part of, of the mayor's cadence. Yeah, definitely. I think we did, we All took right. that question and like beat it into the ground. I'm sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I love listening to to uh, you know I love listening to other people talk about stuff that they've made, and yeah. Uh, back to the actual questions that I wrote down. Uh, favorite scenes to write. Oh boy. <laughs> this is tough. Hippopotamopodes. Oh yeah. <laughs> I I I had such a blast writing that, and uh, Jeff was never convinced it was actually going to work. But I, I I to be clear, I was more worried that it would. I had two. There was two distinct possibilities in my mind that recording it would be next to impossible mm-hmm. um, because people would just be laughing or that you wouldn't get enough to make the joke work. Right. Or that if, if we did it, it would be a joke that was just beaten to death and um, would just sit there for too long <laughs> and not be funny. But as soon as we recorded it, 
as soon as we recorded, I was like, it's it's gold. Yeah. It's gold. It's going to be fantastic. Um, because they, the, I mean, uh, Braden wasn't there. Leanne wasn't there. But Mike Linden and um, Michael Melia recorded it together. Yes. Um, and James obviously wasn't there because James is in California. So even with just two of them there. Yep doing it i was like this is fantastic and i was just imagining the two other vocal tracks on top of it and i was like this is this is going to be hysterical um so i i was dubious i do admit um, <laughs> more more just worried that it could go wrong oh yeah than not thinking it was going to work i i totally understood why you were dubious about it um <laughs> but I, I i i had strong conviction about making it happen it yeah i think that the power of editing definitely definitely helps that scene oh yeah and i rearranged the order of of even even mike mike and michael talking is not in the order that actually happened that was tough to edit because there's a lot of overlapping yeah Um, yeah i wouldn't want to edit that scene my god no that that was hard that was a lot of work but but it it was worth it i'll be honest i thought it was just a bunch of like bloopers that you decided to keep in (laughs) so the fact that it was intended is even better you wrote it it's It's, in the script there's a lot of improvising in there like i i wrote a bunch into the script and they did the bits that i wrote but then they added a lot on top of that yeah there's one point where you just asked some people to just cut loose i I think my favorite is when michael melia is just like hippopotamamosa like, just, like yeah. for some reason there's no way that anybody would think that the plural of hippopotamus is hippopotamamosa but i i love that so much just give a, a hippopotamus a nice mimosa you know a little like orange juice yeah. and champagne he's had a long day there are more than one of him and he needs a drink they need a drink but but i also really love that scene because it's such this ridiculously stupid thing that Michael very deliberately sets in motion with this plan in his head. And that's such a big moment for him. And yeah. And I got to be honest, the first time I read that scene, I thought that they were just dicking around a little bit to, for the joke. And then I, I kind of missed, I missed that aspect. But when I reread it, I was like, okay, yeah, no, he's deliberately trying to get captured. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. And so there, there's, there's purpose to it. Which is kind of crazy because it seems like it's the most arbitrary thing, but uh, he's he's trying to take control of what's going on in that scene. So, mm-hmm. so well done. <laughs> Thank you. So what about you? Uh, oh God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I am. Well, first of all, I think that Alexander also deserves a lot of credit. I mean, he wrote a majority of season one. Um, I kind of came in very late in the game. Um, but the thing, my, like my favorite stuff that he did that really convinced me that the show was going to be kind of special were the monologues in, um, Lean Out the Watch Factory, because I, I just think that those are beautiful monologues and really going to get at the heart of the show a little bit. I, I, and there's some of the reasons that I was kind of like, I want to, I want to, I want to work on this. Like this is, this is special. Um, well, well, thank you though. I do want to point out that you wrote some of that. You, you really did a lot a of little, work on Luis's. Luis's, yeah, but like just just a couple paragraphs. I think the majority of it was was your stuff, um, and I added a line here and there. But for the most part, it was I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, I think things uh, I really liked. See, I I uh, I wish I could be like I, I like this funny moment, but I like the serious stuff. Yeah, more. I I really liked um, Isabel's monologue about the bus riots. I. I 
I was really worried about it, and I felt good about it. Oh, it's so good. Um, I felt good about Nika's monologue in episode 23. I really feel good about Gemma and Charlotte's fight in the finale. I really love... Um, here I am just going on and on about all this stuff that I like. <laughs> um, I really like the moment with the mayor at the very end of the finale. I, I just liked the way it was written. I was proud that it came out the way it did. And the sound design was fun to do on that one, too. Um, I, I'm, I don't know. It's such a fun show to work on because there's... You just have these ideas, and sometimes they're very spontaneous, and sometimes you don't think they're going to work, and then you just try to find a way to make them work. And it's nice to have someone say, you're, you're, I'm always, in the back of my mind, there's a part of me that's always going to be like, he's going to hate this, he's going to say no way, he's going to say that doesn't work. And usually he's, he's the things I'm worried about the most are the things that he's like, that's great, and then he'll find something else that I wasn't worried about at all <laughs> to say, uh, you got to fix that. Um, so, Honestly, yeah, at this point, works. anytime Jeff says, okay, you might hate this, I'm like, okay, here comes the best part. <laughs> yeah, that, that tends to be. And it's kind of the same way with you, I think, for the yeah. most part. A lot of times you're like, I was really worried you're going you're gonna to hate this bit. And I was like, nope, that was, that was awesome. So I guess that <clears throat> speaks to taking risks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> take, take risks because they tend to be the things that pay off the most. Yeah. All right. Uh favorite mini-sode to write? Hmm. I feel like I need to pull up a list of the mini-sodes now. <laughs> I'll answer. Mine, mine's a little boring. Um, I didn't write any of the Ma Mallory monologues in season one, but I wrote the Mallory Sums Up monologue, and so it was my first crack at Mallory, and it was just a blast. Like I, It was also 3,000 words long the first time I did it, and I sent it to Alexander, he's like, this is just a summary. There's no way we can have this be this freaking long. Um, so I had to cut it way down, and there's whole sections that I still want to reuse about her going off on like party buses and stuff. I'm still looking for a way to get that back in there, and I will find a way. Um, so that was, that was a lot of fun. But I also really love the with Chuck without one or with Chuck without Chuck one, because uh, it was such a weird kind of concept and just fun having those characters be together. I'm still looking. I don't know why I, I feel less passionate about my, my minis. Um, Council of Spirits was really fun. Um, that's the one where we meet uh, dipshits family. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, um, you know, there, there's Mallory's job interview uh, between the first two seasons. With the mysterious with, Nika. With the mysterious unnamed employer, who we later learn is Nika. There's one coming up that you did that I really enjoy. I, I really like the one with Melissa. That's all I'll say. Okay. Ooh, insider info. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, I'll be honest. Some of the reasons I do these is to see if I can get any more information <laughs> out of the creators. My, my favorite of our minis is one that Jeff wrote. It, it's absolutely uh, with Chuck without Chuck. <laughs> yeah, I remember thinking that was specifically when that I was like, I'm not sure he's gonna like this, and he literally he wrote back and like on the on the comments, it was just like, I love this, <laughs> like big capital letter. So I was like, okay, never mind. I love Marlo in particular. Like he, is, you know, he was it's totally a, a one-off character, and then just Mike did that voice, and I was like, "Oh my god, this! <laughs> I need this guy to come back." <laughs> and honestly, he's such—he's so easy to write because all I have to do is pull up like the clips of Mike talking, and it—it comes right back out. Like 
and talk about somebody who loves to tangent. My God, that yeah. guy can just talk about his Fords all day long. <laughs> <laughs> just look up some information on Fords and you're all set. Okay, on top of that, favorite, like, specific favorite characters that you just really love to write? Well, Mallory's always a blast. Um, we actually, I mean, we, we made a very conscious decision that we need to be careful not to overdo Mallory because she, she's the sort of mm -hmm. character where um, she could be an Urkel if we, if we made it the Mallory show. Um, so there's a little bit of holding back there. Um, I really enjoyed writing the mayor in the first season. And I do love writing Michael. Yeah, I was going to say, because James got mad at me on Tumblr yesterday because I didn't <laughs> include Michael. He, like, he reblogged from the What's the Frequency Tumblr and was just like, oh, I see, or something like that. But it's because I, I write Michael a fair amount. Usually when I'm writing Michael, he's with Louisa um, and, and or Gemma. That's the stuff that I've kind of written with him the most. Mm -hmm. um, and, and actually, I, I really like the stuff I wrote with him in season one about using the the Jing. that was that was like my first sort of michael scene and i i'm i'm pretty proud of how that turned out yeah um but michael oh, i'm sorry alexander has i think a better sense of michael and leon's relationship um not not that i don't understand it and i can certainly kind of work with it and there's some stuff i'm doing in season three that's sort of centered around it but i i don't think i understand it as clearly as he does, and I think part of that is is because it's somewhat based on you and James. Oh yeah, right? yeah. So James said that. Yeah. Too. yeah. <laughs> um, All right. And my favorite characters, right? It's it's hard to pick one. If I had to pick one, I, I'm not going to pick one. Never mind. Uh, I I love Mallory. I love I love Gemma because um, she sounds very much like me sometimes when i'm like sarcastic and angry and sassy and sweary um which <laughs> probably doesn't say very good things <laughs> about me um i love isabel i love nika I, I think nika was a character that was very much an alexander character at first in season one and mm -hmm. by the end of season one she was very much a chef character i basically took her and just like no she's too happy we have to we have to sat her up so um, so story about that that i haven't mentioned um talking to my my sister astrid about the show um she was saying how she she could spot the moment when the authorship of nika shifted because th throughout <laughs> it's the not subtle i'm sure because throughout the beginning of it she identified with nika and then wow. and then her identifying with nika went away so I, I basically um, forced listeners to not identify with the character anymore. But, That's great. Well, no, no. Well, I mean, she identified with the character because, I mean, I was writing about three siblings and she's my sibling. So there was a no, lot I of know. familiarity there for that reason. Um, but then she has she has an arc. She goes other, other directions. Um, and some of those, the most powerful moments in, in the show are with, from the direction that you took her in. So when was the moment that she, she was it literally when i started writing her or it was during season one okay. so yeah so maybe her breakdown or maybe her scene with louisa when they're waiting for the singing telegram oh maybe yeah yeah but i mean it all yeah. still flows naturally out of what she was doing it's just she changes paths yeah she's the she's the character that changes the most mm -hmm. 
Um, and she's arguably the main character. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's tough to say with an ensemble, but I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people think that Leon's probably the main character, but uh, he's an important character, certainly. Yeah. I would, I would think that Nika is probably the most important in some ways. Um, she's definitely right at the spine of the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's really funny that you identify so much with Gemma when... I started, you know, at the very beginning, that whole thing in the office was so much a self-insert for me. No, I I know. <laughs> and I remember you telling me that. But what's interesting about her character is that we, we both kind of see aspects of ourselves in her. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're different aspects. Yeah. <laughs> and so sometimes we'll, we'll argue the most about Gemma and we'll be like, no, you're right. I wouldn't say that. Or you're... she's being too passive here. Or she's being too angry here and stuff like that. You're absolutely so... right. She's the character we argue about the most. Because yep. because we both identify with her. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we should just pick different characters, I guess. But but she's a blast to write. So yeah. Like you know, we we're both in, really invested in her. Not to say that we're not invested. We're all invested in all the characters. But yeah. Um. Anyway. All right. Uh, what was like one of the hardest scenes that you ha- that you wrote? Like to write. I think we covered mine already, and they, they were both the ones in episode 11, um, the mayor's uh, victory speech turned uh, runaway, and uh, that Michael scene in, in that same episode. I think I did more drafts of those two scenes than of, of any other scene in the show. Mine is Isabel's campaign speech. Um, I went through a lot of different versions of that. I was very concerned that it wasn't going to be right um and i just i don't know i wanted to make sure that it was it was good and it was a new character it was her first big big moment and i i wanted people to like her um but also there's a lots of there's lots of stuff that i was worried about being a cis white male um and representing not just a woman of color but a woman of color specifically talking about important Mm -hmm. issues regarding race and the history of boston and all that stuff um, and the, the Nika breakdown when she kind of talks to Louisa and confesses some stuff at the end, I, that was hard to write in some ways because it was very painful and I was kind of channeling a lot of stuff I was thinking about and feeling at the time into that scene. And so in some ways it was really hard because it forced me to think about that. And in some ways it was actually really nice just to sort of dump all that out and have a place to sort of put it. Um, But it was, I I definitely got, I gave myself a case of the feels a little bit. Um, And I I remember when Kelly recorded it, I I lost it. Like I was definitely like trying hard. It was thankfully dark in Mark's basement, (laughs) but I I was like, I can't let anybody see it, but I am like tearing up and the tears are growing. There's no control in it. Like I just was like, a mess. So we we've both um, been there. Yeah. It, like, I mean, I know you. I I could hear you crying. I could <laughs> when you recorded um, Jessica for yeah. Isabel scene in nineteen, and that that made me cry too. Just listening to it, and that oh was my all God. mostly yeah. one take. Like she's just our 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 cast is incredible. Like they they deserve a lot of credit for what they do. Um, and there's it's the the fact that they get so invested is it just like humbles us so much because we. The show wouldn't be nearly as good without them. Not even close. Yeah. Uh, I guess, what's one 
one thing that you learned from doing Greater Boston that you think is like really important, like an, an experience or something that helped your writing grow or impacted you as a person? Um, well, in terms of, of craft uh, and very specific to audio drama, uh, one thing I learned during the production phase of season one is when you're at the writing phase, know where the hell your characters are physically in space and what kind of <laughs> sound environment they're in. Uh, <laughs> so many goddamn letters in season one. <laughs> letters, and some of the letters are at least about a physical place, so you can score it with sounds that fit the place. Like, Dimitri's aren't yeah. that hard, because you put them on no, a submarine. No, those are, those are easy. Yeah, that's but, that's fun. But, but like, Leon... I remember I remember <laughs> editing Leon's letter to to Gemma and just being like, oh, thank God he's talking about train travel. I can have yeah. some train sounds. The here. worst one was uh, Extinction Events, Events Letter to Tyrell uh, with his letter of complaint about Gemma because the only environment he's in is an office space, which has no really distinct sound at all. And the whole letter is just conceptual. There's no event being described that has any sound environment to it. Um, and so I ended up scoring that whole letter with sounds of war, because why not? <laughs> That's appropriate. <laughs> I remember. I remember at one point. Uh, this this isn't a monologue, but I remember at one point, like Mike uh, Gemma is giving Michael a tour of Third Sight, oh, and I I decided <laughs> that it was just weird that she was just speaking to no one. So I just edited a whole bunch of James just going like uh, mm, uh and just like added that in. Because I just thought it was funny to, like, have another element there. And yeah. it took forever. It, like, took so long. But I was committed that, God damn it, I was going to get Michael in that scene, just kind of, like, stumbling and mumbling his way through it and being completely bewildered. And hopefully it works, but... Um, well, and then we and took it, after you went through all that work, we took the scene and sent it to him and had him record <laughs> all new... Um, uh, uh. <laughs> I know, and I was like, oh, great, I'm... Glad my idea was good, but I guess I could have made this a lot simpler on myself. Oh, well, <laughs> but it was it, it. It punches that scene up so much, and that's no, a, that's a, a great example where I think I wrote that scene, right? Yeah, you did. Yeah, but then it's so completely transformed by that element that you brought into it. It it's so much funnier and so much more interesting than it would have been otherwise. And that's a, that's a good answer to the question in some ways because the, the nice part of this process is you essentially get to write the episode twice. You get yeah. to write it from as a writing perspective, and then you it feels very much like you're authoring it again just by producing it. And you can change and tweak and alter so much from that perspective. And I really, I really value that as a writer because if something doesn't work, I can throw it out, I can edit it out, I can make it better, I can mm -hmm. find a way to make it work. Um, and it's just, it's just a really nice kind of element to have, I think. Um, the other thing I'll quickly say is that this, we, we used to do a lot of theater back in the day and we met in like playwriting workshops, but this experience for me for a long time, I've just been writing on fiction and prose um, and stuff like that. And this, it, just working with all the, the cast, the actors, working with Alexander, working with the musicians, engaging with people like yourself about the show has just made me miss and show me the importance of the communal aspect of something like this. Like it's yeah. very similar to theater and having all these different people kind of involved and that that extends to the audio drama community too because it's an amazing creative community that's so supportive and good-natured and kind and it's 
like that that I've missed that so much and it's just so nice to sort of have that kind of creative community again so that's one thing I've, I've definitely learned doing the show you know coming out of comics in in and in specifically in the side of comics I'm on which is the more indie side there is such a, a prevalent attitude of real art is the vision of a single creator and, and collaboration is so looked down upon um, and oh that drove me so nuts I hated that so much um, because collaboration is is such a wonderful part of art yeah <laughs> and I'm only I'm sort of super on the fringes of the 80 community although I am told that I'm making myself more known <laughs> because I'm it's super super in the works but I am working on an audio drama and that's one of the reasons why I got the idea to do these interviews is, oh, well, I don't know how to do jack shit, so I'll just interview people who and neither do. Neither did we, though. And yeah. we'll figure it out we along had, the way. We had no idea what we were doing. <clears throat> nope. None. Like, we learned from scratch. And that's the nice thing about this medium is you, you can do that. You can, you can develop like that, and it works. So um, just do it. Like, that's uh, when people ask me, like, oh, do you think I can do it? Try it. Just do it. Because it's the yeah. type of medium that allows that kind of self-discovery mm -hmm. and you'll meet a lot of cool people that'll help you so yeah no uh james has really stepped up and like we had only let's see i didn't even realize it was james at first but we met over discord and i was like hey <laughs> james oliva sounds familiar <laughs> and then reagan said something i was like oh James Oliva! <laughs> <laughs> I had that moment, too, with uh, Amanda McLaughlin and Julia Shafini and uh, all the people from Join the Party, really, is I didn't realize they were actually in the Discord until I was, like, two or three weeks after I had been there and was just, like, casually chatting them up. And I was like, hey, friends! I yeah, like, oh, I haven't gone into that Discord. I, I, I feel weird about doing that. <laughs> I mean, you just kind of vanished from the what the frequency Discord. Yeah, I'm I'm like, bad at that. I should say, you know, I it's it's a separate app from where I'm always on Slack. Slack is is where I spend most of my time, and having this other thing to do too, I, I get distracted. And I meant to be there more. I should go check in again. <laughs> I mean, you know, James is he thought he was never going to be there, and he's there all the yeah. time. That doesn't <laughs> so. surprise me. He thought he was never going to be there. He was kidding himself. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can't imagine what the what the Discord would be like without him, because I know James and I have gone back and forth a lot about a lot of things about what's the frequency. I, I just want to jump back a little bit. Uh, Jeff very briefly mentioned, and I think it, it's worth giving a little more um, attention to, but our musicians are such an important part of the show too yes uh, yeah definitely one of them just sent us a surf rock version of a song that <laughs> they had previously uh, done a, a surf I, rock version of an old scottish folk song and it's awesome <laughs> i can't wait to i'm gonna just i don't oh. care if i have to write a scene specific to get that in there it's going in yeah <laughs> it's going in oh man i i can't wait to hear that when me and my roommate we uh we love the music 
sometimes we'll just look at each other and we'll go shove that pig's foot a little further into the fire the and then title. we'll start humming it. The greatest, the greatest title of any song. Yeah. We we are we are talking to the musicians about a soundtrack album. Yes. Yeah, it's. I would buy it in a heartbeat. Uh. It might be something we. Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say. That shouldn't say too much. <laughs> I'm not. Are are yeah. are we able to? Would we be able to charge for it though? Since we, a lot of the songs are public domain. Well, pub, the the songs are public domain. The recordings aren't. Oh right. Okay. Um, so we could. I, I think we were talking about having it as like a milestone on on the Patreon, but Patreon, you know, yeah. we'll see. We, yeah. We we need to wait for them to do some stuff first. Um, yeah. But it's in the works. It's in the works. Mm-hmm. All right. I guess stepping away from Greater Boston, but still to writing. You wrote curses <laughs> from Ars Paradoxica, <laughs> and I just kind of want to know. What we went into we are the that. swearing like specialists. <laughs> That's you need. You need swearing in your audio drama. Come to Jeff and Alexander. We got you covered. We got you fucking covered. <laughs> I. I mean, you were working with uh, all new characters, and I guess I was just wondering, like, how were, would, were you like managing the swearing while also staying true to uh, Sally and Anthony? It was a challenge. Esther. Yeah. But also, we're big fans of that show, um, and I, I, I think I, I really get, especially especially Sally and Anthony, how the cadence of how they talk. Yeah. Um, so I was just kind of thinking about them, um, and and adding, well, in Sally's case, adding lots of swearing. It's <laughs> I just have to tell a story about how this came about. By the way, um, there's there's like a audio drama creative slack with some producers that get together and talk sometimes and. Um, Misha Stanton was just, they were talking about, uh, I, I forget how Dan only allows a certain number of one curse words. One, 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 one F-bomb per episode because that matches certain broadcast standards where you can get away with not having so an you, R rating. They don't have to have the explicit tag yeah. on Ars Paradoxica, which we, we clearly can ne- never shake the shackles <laughs> of the explicit tag. Um, and so Alexander mentioned, like, oh, you should do an episode where Sally teaches her friend how to swear. And Misha was like, do you want to write it? <laughs> and we were like, oh, yeah, we do. Yeah. And we got so excited. And we just kind of split that up into a couple different scenes. And uh, I- I'm really proud of it. i got to be honest with that, you. Like, I think that, that absolutely really well. mind-blowing rant from Partridge at the End is all Jeff. <laughs> I, I have to give I have to give um, Gabriel right that's the actor's name yeah I think he he was so phenomenal like the whole <laughs> cast really just dove in and did a great job but I was dying I don't usually like laugh hard I'm sorry I'm getting texts I don't usually laugh hard at like my own writing but I was like dying the first time I heard that he just did, he just did a, such a phenomenal job I was like crying I think on the train when I first heard it <laughs> Oh yeah, that, I remember when I listened to it, I was like, I saved the mini episodes for later when I thought things were going to be like really harsh, so I listened to Curses right after Plasticity. Oh wow, and yeah. And the mood with Flash. I, I, I love Plasticity, It was kind of like the moment when I was episode. listening to it, because I was listening, yeah, I was listening at work again, and I, so 
what I was doing when I worked was uh, I'd listen to podcasts while I'd be out pushing carts around so I could bring them back to the store. So I was, I was like emotionally shaken from plasticity and then it just goes straight into curses and I had to like brace myself against the cart return because I just couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> I mean, it was a, a similar kind of moment with uh, Autumn's letter in Letters to Leon 2 where I just had to like oh, stop and be like, holy Beth shit. Air. <laughs> yeah, we were so psyched. We... We were talking about who we were going to play Autumn, and we were like, we could ask, you know, all these people, you know, we could we could see if we can get it. And we were like, let's just shoot for the moon. Um, and I just, I mean, she's my favorite actress, like possibly actress, period, but definitely a voice <laughs> actress. Um, and she was so down to do it. She was like so game and so excited. Yeah. And it was so so awesome having her on and like oh, she's so good like I, I couldn't believe it i was like really it's like she just came back and was like yeah i'll do that and we were like what really <laughs> like us like, <laughs> it was such a nice i don't know it was nice it was really nice having her um in the show and i'm glad that i'm glad that worked out because she's 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 the best i don't know i'm just and, I'm, and how many I'm times did you make her say right crunk now. Yeah, I had, the fact that I had Beth there talking about crunking, and I listened to every single one of those takes and died laughing every time, um, and, and definitely enjoyed that. Um, editing it was a challenge, because I just wanted to make a montage of her saying crunk and crunking. Oh. Let's see, all of these are kind of... Hmm. Trying to find the next the next question that transitions smoothly, but now I've there's just no, got a bunch no of random questions left. Crunking. Once you bring up crunking, there's nowhere to go but down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> just just uh, a One other thing that was interesting about writing curses is uh, at the time we wrote it, um, uh, Quentin was dead, and we had no idea he was coming back, and he hadn't been that broadly developed at that point. <laughs> So we thought we had this like blank oh, yeah. slate character we could do anything with. <laughs> yeah, Misha was like, we, we were like, oh, is it going to be a problem? Because we know you kind of killed off that character in like a few episodes into the whole series. And they were like, no, no, no. Um, think interesting things are happening with Quentin. And like, that was it. And we were like, what? Like, what's that all about? <laughs> so it was kind of cool. And, and I that. scripted him so dumb, too. <laughs> Well, he is kind of dumb. He is kind of right? dumb. He is. I mean, the new version or whatever it is is less dumb. Yes, kind of. Yeah, maybe. He um, he, he strikes me as less dumb than than the original version. Right. If it's indeed a different yeah, version, yeah, that's and not a whole just... other can yeah. of worms, right? Time bullshit, Ars Paradoxica. <laughs> I love that show, but man, sometimes it makes my head hurt. Um, as it as it probably should. Yeah. If it didn't do that, it wouldn't be doing its job, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I guess to start winding down, uh, favorite favorite member of the Council of Spirits. Oh boy, we haven't met them all yet. I don't know if we will meet all of them. There's a lot. We haven't met. We haven't met the whole council. We've met the. Whole oh, I'm council. sorry. The whole council. I met the family. We haven't met yeah. the whole family. In, no. in my head, I was I was grouping the whole family together. Just the oh, council. Boy. Plus Fox Fossil. <laughs> Fox Fossil acting member. 
<laughs> um, boy, I don't know that I want to say I have a favorite, but but I will say we'll be seeing at least some of them again. Yay. Yeah, I I like Fox Fossil if if Fox Fossil counts being not a regular member. Um, just because I I randomly name that character, <laughs> like, and I I I don't know I I like Fox Fossil. Um, yeah, I'm also a big fan of the arc that you gave. Yeah, an Axamander. Yeah, I can never say that an name. I'm sorry, but I I thought that gave that mini episode a nice spine and really served to sort of give you. Even though dipshit's not in the episode, it gives a nice perspective on him and, and fleshes yeah. him out a that, lot. That um, was really important to me. I, I've always had in the back of my head this this you know sense of a a deeper Paletti in there. Um, that's just so hard to bring out. <laughs> um, and because it's so much fun to, to write him as an asshole. I so, know, you know, I know. And I keep trying to rein that in a bit. Um, and I really like, even at the beginning, I, I, I had hoped there was a sense that for as obnoxious as he was, Gemma really was terrible to him. Um, well, I think, I think that's clear. Yeah. But like, okay. But, but when you've got Gemma, but it's, like, it's hard to sympathize mix, with like, him. <laughs> they're just oil and water. And yeah. he's definitely like the worst of the two, um, in my opinion. But, but yeah, that was really what I wanted out of this, this episode was to, you know, get a sense of that. There are people who love him and have good reason to. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I know when I first heard like Dippy talk about his, polyamorous relationships i was like oh i i'm poly myself so i was like oh it's just another joke this is fine no and i even listened to the episode one time and i was like eh, even if it's a joke it's at least nice i mean every everything and then i read the annotated transcript and i was like there are tears in my eyes this is so respectful to how i relate oh. to other people and my relationships because i'm not used to that as a poly person is like it just gets blown off as oh you just want to kiss and have sex with all these other people for no reason it's like no i genuinely love these other people well thank you for for saying that so I, yeah and i i did when yeah. we wrote you know in that first bit like yeah it, i mean there's humor in it because there has to be humor in everything and and it's hard to mm -hmm. write him in a relationship with anybody and not have it be funny um and, and the way he describes it because of his speech patterns, it ends up sounding ridiculous. Yes. But I, I knew I had to revisit that and actually show these people precisely because I didn't want that, that initial sense that you got to be the sense that we left on. And I, I will add that um, surprisingly, possibly, uh, the commune in general and, and the spirits council especially are actually going to be very important uh in some ways to where the whole show is going and yep. specifically their relationship to each other is very important specifically mm -hmm. for the reasons that you mentioned um that they're going to serve as something of a model like a, a healthy positive model yeah um, and i think mm -hmm. that's yeah i think it, i don't know we it is a bit of a joke for dipshit just because dipshit's kind of a joke um <laughs> but we also didn't want to make fun of uh you know the idea in general or the, the types of relationships yeah. or the yeah. other people because they're not all awful like he is right right I mean, somebody at one point commented like oh it's just a commune full of dipshits and i'm like no, no. they're they, they might have the same beliefs but they're not like terrible and i think that's what defines him as a character he's not the things he believes in are are pretty good things it's just that he believes in them in a, kind of an awful 
way yeah. and acts on them and behaves like a, like a bully sort of. Yeah. Thing, so. And the challenge there is, like, the characters in the commune all have their ridiculous aspects, and most of them have these absurd names, because that's how our world works. Um, and so, but the important thing is to try to write where the, the people may be absurd, but that doesn't mean their relationships to each other are. Places, uh, what, what are some places that you look to for, like, inspiration? Like, physical, other forms of media? Physical places that inspire me. I don't know that that's or or other media I think or other media oh or other yeah. media um mm-hmm. well I think Jeff mentioned in 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 the uh Tumblr that I, mean, I do read a lot of uh magic realism and a lot of slipstream fiction um mm-hmm. uh Kelly Link has, has been a, a recent favorite um and uh Italo Calvino oh. and and folks like that um so that that type of fiction is certainly a, a big influence on my writing. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I was distracted <laughs> by Julian being hungry too. Um, I, I I like the same kind of of stuff. Um, I oh God, I forget how I answered this the other day. I think that the show spiritually hits hits a tone that's kind of similar to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I really like, um, and reference hmm. kind of a lot, especially since it started as an audio drama. Um, or something. I hadn't. Radio, I hadn't made that show. connection. That's interesting. Tonally, there's some stuff yeah. that I think that we're kind of similar to. <laughs> um, Please remember, I'm recording. And uh, yeah, I guess that's all I'll say. Uh, oh, I think there's there's a nice Dickensian aspect to it. You know, sometimes people say that and it sounds really pretentious, and I don't mean it to sound like we're Charles Dickens mm-hmm. or anything similar. But certainly, the structure of um, lots of characters interacting into in one specific setting i think is is similar and fraggle rock mm-hmm. oh how can i forget fraggle yeah. rock go ahead and talk about fraggle rock fraggle rock yeah please this was pointed out to me by james a while ago and i was like i see do, it now. do you know fraggle rock a lot of people don't know fraggle rock yeah um holy shit no i mean it was over when i was well born, yeah i was raised like i was born in the and, 80s, and even so. even for people who were of that generation it ran on hbo so people who didn't have hbo didn't see it um but yeah it was jim henson's i i feel jim henson's masterpiece um it, it's uh it was a children's show with the explicit aim of world peace uh and it's this subterranean community that is learning how to interact with other very different communities, including humans and the Gorgs and the Doozers, who are these little uh, hardworking construction workers. Um, and as the characters in, in Greater Boston were coming together mentally, a lot of them for me mapped to uh, characters from Fraggle Rock, starting with uh, Dimitri, uh, who was our traveling Matt figure. Traveling Matt was the Fraggle who was out yeah. in the human world and, and sending postcards back to his sending postcards his nephew back. Gobo. Yeah. Um, and that and that fit so perfectly that, you know, it, it seemed right to have one person, as much as we're doing this show about this community, to have one person who's gone from it, who is still tied to it, felt important. Um, and then a lot of the characters map in, in terms of story structure or personality um, Leon and Boober, Michael and Wembley, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, uh, 
I just it started becoming a little more intentional than it was at the beginning. Um, and uh, and then I liked the idea that um, the mayor initially seems like he's the minstrel, uh, but turns out to be convincing John, who is who is the the huckster, <laughs> Fraggle. Yeah. I hadn't even realized that, and James was like, "No, oh, yeah, it's Frog Rock," and I was like, "Because <laughs> I, again, it was over. I was born in '96, so okay, but it was so integral to my older siblings. Right. I'm the youngest of five. Oh wow, yeah. So I just sort of watched all the stuff they did, and. So, Fraggle Rock was just something that was, it was one of the first TV shows I really ever watched, honestly. Yeah. Because we, we had HBO before I was born for, like, a while, and they taped a lot of episodes, so I remember we'd just, like, dig out all these old That's tapes. awesome. It was such a good show. <laughs> and it had it such was... poignant moments in it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There is one that I, that I did not put in here. That I did want to ask, which is, I just remembered it now. Things that you weren't sure about, like, as you wrote them, but then turned out okay or even, like, amazing when you produced them. <laughs> the show? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer, honestly. <laughs> and I don't, I shouldn't say that. Turns out amazing because it's not like well, we're no. sitting back and saying, "Ah, that's amazing" or anything like that. But um, but but it's come yeah. together when we were never sure that it would. That's for sure. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I might be biased, but I think it turned out well, amazing. Thank so thank you. That's kind of you. Well, talk to us when it's all over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, we're not not those that can you know lead you through a great show and then end it horribly. We'll find out. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, uh, I have, I have one last question. Okay. This has been Miss Weekly with Alexander Danner and Jeff Van Driesen of the amazing podcast Greater Boston. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for, Thank having, you for having us. us. <laughs> uh, okay, last question. <laughs> And this is from my roommate, Rachel. Does Michael die? Uh, everybody dies eventually. <laughs> That's such a horrible way to answer that. I mean, I mean, James does have his own show now. So yeah, there is that. To, he does have to focus on that. Um, well, it sounds like you got an answer from James, right? So, and I'm guessing that he, he told you the truth about his horrible, grisly death. Daddy! <laughs> well, you know, one, one of uh, the things Starving I've, to I've proven slowly. to be best at is writing eulogies, so we need more opportunities for that. <laughs> this is so cruel. <laughs> I, I will um, say that as writers, we, we are writers who believe very strongly in bookending significant events, and I think we've seen a lot of that already. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. 
Oh. I'm, not, I'm not even sure what that means, oh. but but that's true. But I'm in this specific case, I'm not sure what that means. But I, I'm not implying anything it specific. With Leon dying, so to bookend it, the obvious choice is another death. That is the obvious oh. choice. That's the obvious choice. Yeah. Although, of course, there is the other bookend, which is a birth. But Monty's already. Mm-hmm. We did born, that bookend so. already. Um, but we do we do like to find, you know creative ways of bookending so who knows who knows I, I, here's what i will promise you that when they finally find michael's remains buried <laughs> on the bottom of a heap of groceries that have just been sent up to it'll be like it'll be like scrooge mcduck's like coin like chamber that he like that he swims in except it'll just be like rotting food and michael's corpse on the bottom tied to a chair uh no i i promise that when you find out, it won't be too far into season three. That's all. That's uh, all. I'll say. 